Hello, my name is Chad. And my name is Will. And welcome to the Notorious 14. If you are interested in the supernatural and unsolved crimes, we invite you guys to uh, like our social media pages on Facebook and Instagram at the Notorious 14. The past November 24th marks the 50th anniversary of the unsolved FBI case of the hijacking of Boeing 727 by Dan Cooper. On November 24th, 1971, a middle-aged man carrying a black leather briefcase buys a one-way ticket with cash from Northwest Orient Airlines as Dan Cooper. The tickets are going from Portland, Oregon to Seattle, Washington. He was described as being in his mid-40s wearing a black business suit with a white shirt and black tie. The plane that he would board is a Boeing 727, a narrow-bodied single-engine commercial airplane introduced in 1958 by Boeing Commercial Airplanes. After boarding the plane, Dan Cooper orders a bourbon and a soda and smokes a cigarette while waiting for takeoff. After the takeoff, Dan Cooper hands stewardess Florence Schaffner an envelope containing a handwritten note. Not thinking much of it, Florence put the envelope inside of her jacket and continued on her duties. After a hot second, Dan asks the stewardess to come sit next to him in his seat. Upon her arrival in the seat, he reveals that he has a bomb inside of his briefcase and demands that she reads the note. Miss, you better look at that note. I have a bomb. After she reads the note, he insists that she takes a list of demands to the pilot, who would radio it to the FBI. When she returned, Cooper was wearing dark sunglasses. Wouldn't you think it's a good idea to put the sunglasses on before you board the plane? Absolutely. I, I mean, <laughs> at that point in time, like, what? why would he be putting the sunglasses on? Everyone's already seen his eyes. Like, they know what color they are. Like, he's not really doing much. If he was going <laughs> to wear them for, like, the skyjacking, like, you'd think that he'd wear some better sunglasses. Like, someone's with straps on them or something. Gets in the airplane. Oh, crap. My sunglasses. Yeah, I don't know why he puts them on after she comes back. Like, guy's got to be cool. The name, like, D.B. Cooper. Although Schaffner could not later remember what was all on the letter, she did recall that it mentioned the bomb and for her to sit by Cooper. Cooper had the case open long enough for her to see eight red cylinders attached to wire surrounded by red insulation connected to a large battery. The FBI collected Cooper's ransom, $200,000 in U.S. bills, all in $20 bills, four parachutes, and a fuel truck to refuel the plane upon arrival. Failure to provide these demands would result in Cooper's detonating the explosives. He said, no funny business, or I'll do the job. After the plane lands in Seattle, Cooper exchanged the lives of the 36 passengers for his listed demands, all of which were met. After the exchange, Cooper makes the pilot take off for Mexico City. Because of delays in refueling, Cooper became antsy and impatient, saying, This shouldn't take so long. Let's get the show on the road. Cooper demanded that the landing gear remain deployed in the takeoff position, the wing flaps be lowered 15 degrees, the cabin remain unpressurized, and the aft staircase remain deployed. I mean, if he's just like, Will you please do this for me? Like, please. I don't want to be rude about it. Leave the cabin unpressurized and the aft staircase deployed, please. Yeah, I don't think that they're probably going to be as willing to do it if he's like, I got a bomb and I'm angry, and I got sunglasses on, don't fuck with me. Like, he wasn't like, I get uh, fire parachutes and a field truck, eh, please, boss? And I may be doing all this, but I'm really sorry. Please understand how sorry I am. Cooper was informed that a second stop was needed for refueling, and he agreed to Reno, Nevada. Between Seattle and Reno, Nevada, the plane records that the tail section sustained a sudden upward movement around 8.13 p.m. This is thought to be the time that Cooper jumped out of the plane with two of the four parachutes and the money. Cooper freefalls through the cold, stormy night sky, only to disappear, never to be seen again. So, here's what we know about the case. A few different facts that we have found on the internet from a few different sources. With many different odds and ends of the case that we just want to share with you guys. Help you uh, make a determination on whether or not you think D.B. Cooper uh, may or may not still be around. In the 1970s, the FBI created Project Norjack, also known as Northwest Hijacking, in determination to identify him and bring him to justice. Out of more than 800 suspects that the FBI considered, only two dozen remains by the end of the fifth year anniversary after the crime. 
which like that's kind of crazy to seem that they had ruled out like 780 people over five years that is very crazy like they brought in that many people and investigated them and looked into their lives like i feel like nowadays that kind of stuff doesn't happen at all like if a serious crime happened like we have fingerprint and dna evidence like it'd take probably like 48 hours and they'd be like yeah we got our guy yeah they have it like databased and put people's like dna and data on like the entire system it's impossible to get away with a crime i feel like nowadays you gotta be like super good dan cooper good in the 1970s too around the time of the crime they didn't really use dna testing at all I can imagine, like, just trying to go off these few different facts, what he looked like, based on the flight attendant's description of him, and based off of the fact that he was wearing a tie and probably his work uniform, they didn't really have much going for him. Pretty much the only evidence that he had left behind were the uh, signature on his plane ticket, which, I mean, you could try and match handwriting, but I feel like that's kind of a iffy piece of evidence that you could use. I'm sure lots of people write pretty similarly, especially if it's in cursive. He also left his black clip-on tie on the plane, which had a bunch of rare earth metals on it that they discovered eventually. At that point in time, D.B. Cooper probably would have died or been long gone. The only thing that the earth metals indicated was that maybe he worked for the Boeing commercial air flight company, but there wasn't really a lot lot else going on. There was some DNA, but at the time, they didn't have the DNA testing like I was saying, so... Yeah, DNA has only been around like at that time for only like 20 years. Yeah. So they're just then implementing it into like forensic studies and stuff like that. Yeah, I feel like even like at the time that they would have gotten to the point of DNA testing for the DNA like on the tie, mm-hmm. the DNA probably would have degraded and like almost not been usable at that point. Yeah, pretty much. And there were some cigarettes that he left behind that he was smoking on the plane, but... They magically got up and walked away, I guess. <laughs> they uh, they weren't able to find them, even though they had seen him smoking cigarettes on the plane. Maybe he took them with him? I don't know. I think the cigarettes were picked up in the investigation, but somehow they disappeared. You think like somebody was hiding them? The FBI somehow lost them. So there's no way this was an inside job. Yeah. Not at all. Evidence doesn't just magically get up and walk away, you know? Although the original charge on Cooper was air piracy, it was later changed to him violating the Hobbs Act, which is wrongful extortion using force and fear. One month after the original crime that Cooper had committed, the serial numbers for the ransom money were released in an effort for the FBI to catch Cooper using the money. The uh, investigation would go on for another 45 years. The investigation finally ended in 2016. Although the statute of limitations on his crime are still standing. So, the question of all questions, did he survive and make it out with $200,000 in ransom money? I think he did. I think he did too. A lot of people don't agree with that opinion though. A lot of people think that uh, because of the weather and the 200 mile an hour wind that he was forced to jump out into it, he probably would have just gotten ripped to shreds, you know, like... Like, I couldn't imagine. It'd be like jumping into a, the middle of a hurricane. Like, yeah. And it's cold. The fact that he was wearing a business suit and loafers. Yeah, that, to that's... To jump out of a plane. That's not something that you'd want to be jumping out into with the Washington wilderness in the middle of November. It's freezing cold, and there's mountains and trees, and God only knows what kind of animals. Like, he could have, like, gotten impaled or something like the fact that he had taken a, a dummy parachute and a non-sterile parachute there's no way that he would be able to like precisely land in the spot he was thinking he was gonna land 
was either really, really dumb and just probably crashed into the trees and like exploded or somehow was able to calculate every single small detail, including the fact that he couldn't steer his parachute and jumped out in 200 mile an hour winds and then landed where he needed to land. He would have to be the smartest man in the entire world, which I don't think that he probably was. Yeah, a lot of people also think like maybe he chose the non-steerable parachutes, not because he was dumb, but out of familiarity. He also mentioned that McCourt Air Force Base was 20 minutes away from the airport, which is a very good assumption at the time. Yeah, I mean, out of a lot of the different suspects and stuff, they they think maybe he would have had some kind of military experience in the in the manner of even wanting to hijack the plane. So it, it really does not sound like he was overly experienced in general no. at the time. But if he was experienced and he did all of these bad decision making, all the, if he made all these bad decisions on purpose, then I mean. He was a hell of a smart guy. He's a super smart guy. I mean, <laughs> you would have to be incredibly smart to be able to pull this off with all of the decisions that he made in this case. I personally believe that he did survive and get away with the ransom money. Yeah. But a lot of this evidence kind of points against it. Unfortunately, nobody actually knows what happened. Well, even like the fact that they found a little sticker from the plane, but haven't found his body. Or his parachute. Yeah, no parachute, no money, no body. You would think if they were going to go over the entire area with helicopters and dogs and cars and search every square inch that they would have found something. Yeah. Like, he he wasn't just dragging the parachute behind him, I doubt. If you're carrying around that with all of the other pieces of equipment, you'd think that you would find something ripped up or torn, even just like shreds. Of something, but it seems like he vanished into thin air. Yeah, it's kind of weird. Like, nothing was found on the ground, despite, like, nearly 45 years of searching for anything. You'd think they would have searched every square inch of that area between Reno and uh, Seattle. One of the pieces of evidence that leads us to believe that D.B. Cooper did survive his landing was the Tina Bar incident. In the springtime of 1980, a boy by the name of Brian Ingram was at Tina Bar Beach with his family. They were sitting out on the beach planning on having a fire, so the boy started digging a pit. Upon digging up the pit, Brian came upon a rotting bag filled with cash, later to be identified as $5,800 in ransom money, all with the serial numbers matching of the D.B. Cooper ransom. So how did the money get there? Here are some of the theories. Since the money was buried in sediment, that had been added to the landscape in 1974, which is three years after the original uh, skyjacking had taken place. It kind of implies that the money would have been buried there after they had like set down all of that sediment there. It kind of adds to the theory that maybe he had come back at a certain point in time and buried some of the ransom cash. Because it, you would think that it would be buried out even further, but it was in the top few layers of the sand. So it only makes sense that you think he had come back and buried the bundle of money there, maybe for safekeeping, which is really dumb, but like that's better than somebody than him spending it and someone matching the ransom numbers up. Six years after they put all of that soil there, the boy finds the money. So at some point in time, it either was moved around or buried there. A lot of people think that it came from connecting rivers to the Columbia River. Maybe D.B. Cooper had fallen into the river and the money washed up on the beach and somehow got buried in in the top layer, which I guess weirder things have happened, but it doesn't scientifically make a lot of sense. The theory of like layer disposition where like the older layers are at the bottom, the newer layers are at the top, like 
it only seems to make sense that it would have been buried there later than 1974, which is still three years after after the hijacking. One of the other theories that um, kind of implies that it was buried there a little bit later in time was that the rubber bands that the bank used were usually pretty weak. The rubber was not very durable, and a lot of people seem to think that uh, the rubber bands would not have held up to being buried under sand and being wet for six years. One of the other things was that the uh, money was still in fairly okay condition, somehow being preserved. I don't think that being in wet, sandy conditions would preserve money in rubber bands, but I guess if it wasn't there for a very long time, it wouldn't be completely destroyed. I'm pretty sure for the rubber bands also, there's been certain tests that prove those bands could not survive the elements for more than a year. They did, like, forensic tests and stuff. Yeah. Just to try and prove. Yeah, I'm not really sure where I found that, but I'll put the link of that in the description. But that money was sitting there for nearly up to six years. How would the rubber bands hold up? How would the money stay intact? I mean, they could still read the serial numbers on the money. If it was sitting there for up to six years, you would think that it would have just been completely destroyed. One of the other leading um, pieces of evidence that show that the, the money was put into the river and put maybe into the sand later on was uh, was diatoms. Diatoms are little microscopic algae that form during different parts of the year. You can look at them under a microscope and see them, and there are different kinds of them that form at different parts of the year in water. And the ones that they found on the money were supposed to be ones that would grow in the springtime, which if the money would have ended up in the water in November, obviously this is several months later that it would have ended up in the river if the springtime ones were growing on it. How would the money be in the river months after he jumps out of the plane, you know? It would have had to have either, like, maybe, like, landed on a bank and then slid in a few months later, which doesn't make a lot of sense, or maybe... Not really. He would have put the money in the water, in the sand, by the bank, months later, and it was sitting there for a few years in order for the springtime diatoms to grow. Basically, all the facts point to the conclusion that D.B. Cooper probably planted the money there yeah him or somebody in relation to him and the crime would have put it there later on after the crime itself so maybe somebody was in on it with him or maybe he maybe he survived and put it there years later just to hide it i mean if the fbi had released that they gave out the ransom number the serial number for all the ransom money he wouldn't just go and spend it if he's a smart guy because he knows he'd get caught for sure so you know wait a few decades spend the money then maybe or like i don't know trade with somebody in small town find some small smaller goods to buy stuff with with your money it's even kind of like weird it's like they found the five thousand eight hundred dollars but what happened to the rest of the money yeah i mean there's a what a hundred and ninety four thousand dollars still somewhere yeah that they i'm sure they probably must have searched around the area after they had found that money looking up and down the Columbia River and the connecting rivers and nothing else has ever turned up. Why Why only 5,800 of it was, was there instead of the other 194,000? Yeah, you would think like if that money did come unpackaged from the rest of the money parachuted from the plane, why wouldn't there be more around the area? Yeah, I mean, loose leaf, like just scattered around, even buried somewhere. He had originally like stuffed all of it into the dummy parachute which i isn't what they found it in they found it in a different container a different bag so like it seems like there's some funny funny business going on here that's some funny stuff he said no funny stuff but then he's doing funny stuff 
I think he blew up when he started doing funny stuff. <laughs> Jumps out of the plane, just. <laughs> I mean, if he's basically jumping out into a hurricane, like. It's not a hurricane, but basically, like, hurricane conditions, like. <laughs> I can just see him just, like, sitting at the top of the stairs and be like, oh, yeah, here I am. I'm about to jump out of this plane. He's like, getting ready, getting to the end of the steps. So he's like, <laughs> Oh, just get sucked out. <laughs> I mean, that's why they had it unpressurized, I'm sure, so he didn't. As we mentioned earlier, 800 suspects were picked by the FBI, and they were able to narrow it down to two dozen suspects. Of the two dozen suspects, we have a top four list that we'd like to go through and discuss with you. Number one, <laughs> Richard Floyd McCoy. <laughs> Although McCoy was uh, said to have been with his family in Utah for Thanksgiving dinner at the time of the crime, five months after the original D.B. Cooper crime, he committed a similar skyjacking. Similarities include the request for four parachutes, handwritten notes directed towards the pilot. The plane was also a Boeing 727, and he was arrested for this one, which D.B. Cooper wasn't arrested for his crime. So it's not a similarity, but he was arrested for this one <laughs> and was sentenced to 45 years in prison. So if Richard McCoy was D.B. Cooper during the original crime, you'd think he probably would have escaped pretty similarly to the this as the same crime. I was going to say, hopefully uh, his arresting is not a similarity because why are we doing this if it was a similarity? I mean, I feel like if you're going to hijack a plane, obviously you'd write a note directing it toward the pilot. And I feel like a Boeing 727 was probably a popular plane. Yeah, I think it was probably a popular commercial airplane, which is the reason why it was the same kind of plane. I think it was extremely coincidental, not necessarily the fact that it would D.B. Cooper would have been familiar with that kind of plane. Although he might have been, yeah. if he worked at the Boeing facility. Yeah, I just, I feel like probably Richard Floyd McCoy probably isn't a good fit. No, he did, look, he did look pretty similar to the sketch, but so did the other 24 suspects and probably more people. Yeah. Like, when you look into the sketches, it's weird that all of them look familiar to D.P. Cooper, but none of them look alike. Yeah, none of them look much. None of them look similar to each other. Yeah. But they all look like the sketch. I feel like the sketch was made, like, almost kind of vague. It's kind of weird. Which, yeah. I can imagine when you're trying to find somebody based off of eyewitness sketches, like, police sketches, it's, it's, there's a pretty, pretty high population out there. There's probably going to be lots of guys that kind of look like that top of the line, wearing a business suit, working at Boeing, family man kind of. Kind of butch look, you know. <laughs> He's just glaring at me. He's like, "Yeah, it just feels like it'd be kind of cool to like find out the percentage of people that actually look like the sketch." Yeah, it's probably a lot more than what they actually like the amount of people that they actually investigated for sure. Um, one of the reasons that he was uh, debunked as DB Cooper was when he escaped prison. He was in prison in Lewisburg, Pennsylvania, and he escaped prison and was driving through Virginia Beach, 
and gotten a shootout with the FBI, which seems pretty dumb, dumb to me. Like, you're not gonna walk away from that alive if you're like against the entire FBI. Fortunately, he was killed in Virginia Beach during that shootout. So if he was DB Cooper, he's not alive anymore. And I don't think that he would have been caught the second time around. Unless they're waiting for him. They're just like, he's going to be back. Number two. (laughs) Kenneth Christensen. So Kenneth Christensen is an army paratrooper. And he was working as an attendant for the Northwest Airlines. Throughout his entire life, his brother Lyle Christensen thought that he could have been D.B. Cooper. Like, throughout his entire life, as in after the crime. Especially since on his deathbed that he made a confession to an unknown crime. He didn't ever tell his brother what the crime was, but he's like, I did something bad. So his brother's like, oh, I thought he was D.B. Cooper, so that must be what he's talking about. So he, his brother thought he was D.B. Cooper. There's a few things that kind of point that maybe he... Was D.B. Cooper? Shortly after the crime, he bought a new house in cash, which at that point in time, like, you'd have to be working a really high-paying job to be able to save up the money to buy a house in cash. I don't think that they ever scanned the bills for the serial numbers for that house, but having that much cash on hand, especially right after a crime where $200,000 were given out, kind of seems a little bit suspicious. Could have absolutely also been a coincidence. The FBI ruled him out because he didn't look like the physical description of the suspect. Although he kind of did a little bit of the sketch, but they must not have thought that he looked close enough. Our number three suspect is Jack Kofelt. I think that he might be one of the closer ones on the list. He was one of the first people to claim that he was D.B. Cooper after the original skyjacking crime in 1971. Uh, Kofelt had a large amount of knowledge in regards to the Cooper case. He had all these explicit details that he would tell people about the case that made it seem like he was there in person. The FBI debunked him because he was a con man. He would often go around looking for opportunities to make money off of people. And I believe he ended up in uh, Las Vegas just scamming people out of money at some point in time. So I don't think that that would have been D.B. Cooper. The man, the myth, the legend. Yeah, I feel like you can't ever trust a con man. No, and why try and make money pretending to be... A criminal? Yeah. You're just like, yeah, I was T.B. Cooper. Here's my untold story Here's of my... everything that happened. Now give me your money. I feel like you're just asking to get arrested. If you want to get a, get rich, probably not act like a, uh, a criminal. criminal. Yeah. Yeah, no, he was, he was debunked as a con man that was just telling people crap to make money by the FBI. He was no longer considered a suspect. Our number four suspect is Dewan Weber. On his deathbed, he told his wife, Joe, that he had a secret to tell her, and he said, I'm Dan Cooper. His wife would later recall that Dwan would talk in his sleep about leaving fingerprints on a plane, which is understandable from the the standpoint of being D.B. Cooper. He also had a knee injury that he claimed that he got from jumping out of a plane earlier in his life, which, I mean, would make sense. You know, if he was D.B. Cooper, he probably didn't have a great landing jumping out in the middle of the night from an airplane in November. It's probably windy and cold. It's mountainy, so like maybe he hit something on the way down. One of the things also was that they found what was quote unquote his handwriting in a library in a book about D.B. Cooper. Which I mean, I feel like you'd have to be pretty good to be like, yeah, it's this guy. His handwriting matches and everything, but it's in this library in this book specifically. Like, I really think that you'd have to be uh, on point 
to be like, yeah, it's 100% this guy. It's me. <laughs> That's what he wrote in the margins. Did he? I have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> it is I, Dan, Danny Boy Cooper. Duane, all, Duane, Duane? <laughs> I think it's Dwayne. I'm pretty sure it's Dwayne. Dwayne? Dwayne would... <laughs> Later he would take his wife, Joe, to Tina Bar Beach, where the ransom money was found in 1980 by Brian Ingram. Uh, one of the weird things was that he took a solo trip, just left his wife and went and, like, down to the beach off this trail and went and it looked like when he came back that he had been digging he's like all covered in dirt and stuff so like maybe he is the one that buried the ransom money there or later went like went looking for it or something also he could have just found it in the woods i mean it's true and then buried it it's possible so i don't know why he would have just been like cash put it in the sand (laughs) leave it there i don't know but it does seem very, very suspicious that he would have just went out digging randomly away from his wife for a little while while they were on their vacation out there. Which seems weird, but he was ruled out by DNA testing. So, like, it's almost guaranteed that he was not D.B. Cooper. But he has all these weird things pointing towards him that he might have done. Yeah, it's kind of a weird thing to, like, disclose on your deathbed. Yeah, especially, like, I'm to Dan your Co- wife. I'm Dan Cooper. Like... I feel like you're supposed to be pretty, like, straight up and forward with your wife. Obviously, there's a lot of people that aren't, but, like, just in theory, it doesn't make sense. Yeah. Unfortunately, we'll never know. He's dead. Unfortunately, we might never know. Unless the FBI releases a record here in, like, another 20 years. And they're like, we knew this whole time, but we like to hold secrets from the American people because we suck. I don't think they found them yet. Probably not. I don't think they're that good. No. Just gets a text. From the FBI. <laughs> Shut the fuck up. No, we're better. <laughs> Stop talking right now. <laughs> yeah, probably of all the uh, possible suspects, um, I would lean probably toward Dwayne Weber. That would be my top pick. Honestly, like, the other people were ruled out, although he was ruled out by DNA testing. Yeah. A lot of what his story had involved with it makes more sense than the other ones that he would have been. The thing with the DNA testing, too, is they're not positively sure that that's actually D.B. Cooper's DNA. The stuff they got from the tie. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it could have been anybody's DNA, I guess. It's just, it's weird that there was never anybody that they could pinpoint and just be like, hey, this guy did it. And they probably will never be able to do that since it's been so long since the case. But if they ever do, they better let us know. We'll be here. We'll be here, and we'll be reporting it to you. Don't murder us. Don't. Because. it's not polite. We want to make it to 100 subscribers by the end of this year. We really do. Before we get murdered. (laughs) Yeah. You guys can help us out with that by checking out our YouTube and Spotify and subscribing to us. One thing is for sure. Although the investigation may be over, and we may never know who D.B. Cooper was, this case will live in infamy forever. We do know one thing, though. You want to subscribe to our YouTube channel. Yes. Yes, you do. Um, We have a goal this year of reaching 100 subscribers by the end of this year. Um, If you'd like to help us reach that goal, please subscribe to our YouTube channel, uh, follow us on Facebook, and share with your friends. We also want to make our content better, so if you do want to help us out, please tell us on the points we can improve on our content. The next episode that we will be working on and trying to put out by Christmas time will be our uh, Santa and Krampus episode. 
We uh, look forward to you guys listening to that and having to hear what we have to say about that. If you have any suggestions for it uh, before we have a chance to put it out, please leave a comment in this video. So here's a real question. Are you going to be naughty or are you going to be nice? Subscribe.